sometimes the things we think are secure are always that secure. I remember growing up in Oklahoma, um, we lived in a, just this little house, and my brother moved back in. He's 10 years older, and he, he went to Oklahoma University Sooners. Whoop, whoop, right on. I'm the only Oklahoma fan in here. Right on. Anyway, he did the boomerang thing, and he came back home. And so, we, you know, we had to share a room. And you know how it is with a brother that you have to share, or sisters, you've shared rooms together. And so we did this makeshift thing with bunk beds and built it up. And so, you know, I'm the youngest one. I'm the kid. Of course, I want the top bunk. So my brother, he's older. He's too cool for school, so he's going to be underneath on the bottom bunk. Well, you know, as a kid, you get up on that top bunk and you just jump. I mean, you're just freedom, freedom. You know, you're just going down onto that top bunk. Well, I did this forever. And this one time I was doing it, and I should have seen this coming, but my brother's kind of watching over here, you know, and I get on top of the bed and I jump. And see, unbeknownst to me, he had moved the wooden slats in the top bunk and I just flew through it, just bam, just on the floor. Mattresses are going over. And, of course, I fell victim to this happening repeatedly because he would wait until I trusted him and he would do it again. That's how life is sometimes, though. The things that we think are secure are always secure. There's illusion. There's really nothing guaranteed in life except one thing. You see, I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he talked about the the rich man that built upon the rock. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you're, you're wise when you take my words and you build upon the rock. Or when you, if the other way, you're the fool if you take my words and you don't build upon them. It's like building upon sand. How many of you are there? Maybe you're even a believer. You're like, I know the rock. I know the truth. I know the place to be building upon. I know whose word to put my trust in. But you find yourself quickly back over building with sand, building those sandcastles that quickly get washed away. You see, that's the problem with sandcastles. You build them up, and the next day they're gone. And you build them up, and you're saying, I can do it in my own strength. And you keep doing it. It keeps washing away. As the sand is going through your fingers... Aren't you tired of that? You see, there's only one place that we can build on, and that's the solid rock. Christ, the cornerstone. Christ alone. That's it. The problem is that illusion of security that we build that sandcastle, and sometimes it kind of stays. But everything will fall out. Have you ever been in that place? That place in life? It's because we have a bent perspective. I, uh, we moved into this house a year and a half ago or so, and I was super pumped because they had a basketball goal. And I know I play guitar, and no one's going to believe me that I actually, you know, did sports, was, you know, that kind of thing. But I was super pumped. I'm like, a basketball goal, I can't wait. So I was out there every day dribbling and, like, shooting. And, but I noticed, like, when I tried to shoot, every time I was missing, surprise. And, um, but the reason why is that it had a bent rim, if you looked at the backboard, it was just bent. But the thing is, is, I got better and better and better until it was swoosh, swoosh, swoosh. I even did some stuff to kind of improve the situation because the ground wasn't level. So I had one of those little yellow things that shoots the ball back at you. Probably shouldn't tell you that. And all these different things. But see, that's like our perspective in life sometimes. It's bent. But the illusion is that we get better and better and I can do it. But see, the problem with that is 
is if I went to the standard, if I went to the official court and the official size where everything's measured, I couldn't do it. I'm so used to shooting on that bent rim that I wouldn't be able to shoot on the standard. And that's what sin does. You put Kevin Durant in front of me, I'm in big trouble on that court. You see, we have bent perspectives, and yet sin does that to us. It keeps us going back to that place. But there's a standard. There's a place. You see, what ground do you stand on? What are you building on? Are you building those sandcastles? Is the sand going through your hands? You see, there's only one place to build, and that's on the rock, who is Jesus Christ. His finished work on the cross is what he did for you on the cross in a place called Golgotha, which means skull. But before Golgotha is a place called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. We can't have Golgotha unless we have Gethsemane. We can't stand on what he did at Golgotha unless he endured what he endured at Gethsemane. You see, we need that time that Jesus went before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. If you have your Bible or your iPad or whatever you have, you can turn to Luke 22, 34, 39, excuse me. Let's read. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And first, just if you think about the Mount of Olives, it's sort of like that place where all the olive tree, trees are, where they're harvesting, where they're producing olive oil. And this is a place that Jesus often went. And his disciples followed him. You see, they had just been to that place where they celebrated the Passover together. And Jesus even redefines Passover, but they don't understand what's happening. But you sense this warmth that's happening with the Savior. So they get to this place where they're leaving, and the Bible says they left, and they sang some sort of hymn, whatever that was. But it says that he went out at the Mount of Olives, his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what he's thinking in his mind? When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so we will not fall into temptation, so you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, and we know this is Peter from one of the other Gospels, 
struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And we know in the the book of John, Jesus turns to Peter who did this after he heals this man. He says, Peter, should I not take the cup the Father has given me? Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with, with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. And catch this, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, it was probably an eerie moment. They've come from this warm place near the Temple Mount where where this big celebration of Passover is happening. And he's with his disciples sharing that meal, the Last Supper. And he leaves, he walks out. We know he was near the Temple Mount. And to get over to the Mount of Olives, he would have had to pass through the Kidron Valley. Mark says that he passed through the Kidron Valley where there was a stream going through. You see, it was Passover season. It wasn't just the night. It was, they celebrated all week. And there was over 100,000 sacrifices that were made. Can you imagine what that was like? And the priest would drain that blood from the altar, and it would go into that Kidron Valley and in that stream. And you can picture just this, it looked like a stream of blood just flowing. And it was the rainy season, the end of the rainy season. So sometimes it would rain harder. And you can imagine just the powerful flow that looked like blood just flowing through. And for Jesus to get on the Mount of Olives, he has to step through that Kidron Valley. He has to go see that flow of blood. Can you imagine what he's thinking? The Lamb of God, sinless, spotless. Maybe he finds a place that's a little more shallow, that has a few rocks. But inevitably, he gets the blood on his sandals and all over his feet. You can picture him picking up his robe and going across, saying, that's going to be me. My blood's going to flow out for them. And he's approaching the Mount of Olives. The place where in the past, it's this place of joy. It's a place where he gets alone with the Father, where he receives spiritual strength. And yet we read in Luke that something has changed. The tone has changed. He says it's time for the hour of darkness to reign. It's almost like God has put back his hand. It said to order to deliver my son, to do his work. For the moment he came for, I've got to pull back. And right now, I'll let darkness reign. We know it was a full moon, the way the Jews counted the days. So it's Passover night. There's a full moon. Amongst these trees, you can picture the shadows, and Jesus is walking in it. Mark says he was deeply distressed and troubled. That words, these words are very hard to translate. But the deeply distressed is a sudden, shocking awareness. And troubled, that doesn't really do it justice. It says to the point of sheer terror, Jesus, fully God, fully man, 
that human side, like all of us, is experiencing something that most of us have never, ever experienced. Sheer, shocking terror. So much so that Luke says that he was bleeding blood, sweating blood that was dripping from him, falling to the ground. Can you imagine being in that terror? Shocking, knowing what's about to happen to you, for this is the moment that you came. Can you imagine his, his blood vessels under his skin breaking and blood pouring out? It's the time that darkness is going to reign. You see, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. The first Adam sinned, fell short of, short of God's glory, and all of us have done the same. We followed Adam. We've disobeyed God. We've chosen the wrong way. We have not chosen God's way. But there was a prophecy in that garden that one day a Savior would come, and we know his name is Jesus, and it says that there will also be an enemy. And it says that enemy would strike his heel, but that Jesus would crush his head. You see, it's the hour of darkness reigning. And we fast forward to another garden where the second Adam, the New Testament calls him, is going to say yes to God. But he's going to experience sheer, shocking terror at what is about to happen. Do we get that? Do we understand that? You see, I don't think... It was just that the hour of darkness was starting to reign. But what would that feel like to be Jesus? Your father has stepped back. When he's praying that prayer about the cup, Mark calls him, he calls out, Jesus calls out, Abba! Those are intimate terms that means like Papa or Daddy. Daddy! Take this cup from me. Please, Dad, Abba, Daddy, Father, Papa, no. You see, I don't think that that sheer shocking terror was there just because Satan was allowed for a moment to reign and think that he could crucify the Lord and think he could keep him in the grave. And I think it, it also was terror because he knew he was going to take the, the sin upon the shoulder of every man, woman, and child sitting in this room and that ever lived or walked this earth the sinless, spotless lamb who does not know sin is going to become sin. But you know why I think he really had shocking terror that he would bleed? Drops of blood? It's because he knew that he was going to have to take the wrath of God. The penalty that we deserved. He's fully God. He understands, if anybody understands, the wrath of God. The book of Jeremiah, the Psalms, all say that God has a wine mixed with dregs in it, ready to be poured out on the nations. Our God is a just God. If something has to be done about sin, there are consequences. And Jesus knows that. And he says, take this cup, Papa. He's looking, he's gazing into the wrath of God, the fury of God that we deserve, that I deserve. You don't know me. I know me. I know how dark it is in here. And he's looking into the wrath. And Jesus three times goes out to his disciples. Three times he prays. The second time in one of the accounts, he says, if the only way this can happen as if I drink it, 
then your will be done. You see, we need Gethsemane before Golgotha because he was getting ready to sacrifice his body, but he had to sacrifice his will. And the second Adam and Adam said, yes. Father, because you love them, and because I always do what you say, and because I love them too, I will drink your fury. I will drink your wrath until it's gone. Until every single last drop in the dregs that were formed in the, in the bottom, that were the bitterest, I will drink it. Because that's how much he loves you. Can you imagine what it would be to stare into that? For this is why I came into the world. He brought me in the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through me. And Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, that human part is in sheer terror because he knows the cup that he has to drink, the cup of his wrath. You see, when they're going into the garden, Jesus says, come with me, watch with me. And some of the disciples stay here, but he takes Peter, James, and John, and they come with him, he says, watch with me. And then he goes a a stone's throw away. You see, the reason why they were watching is because in Exodus 13, for all generations, Jews are supposed to have a night of watching. And it looks back into Egypt and the Passover and the blood that was put on the, the, the door frame. And the angel of death passed over. And it's, it is, God said this, because I watched over you, make this a night of watching. These are what the Jewish people were doing. And because they felt like God never slumbers, God never sleeps, we're not going to do that either. We're going to remember what he did for us. But I think Jesus is looking forward, saying, I want you to watch. Realize what's happening. That same thing, that atonement that happened in Egypt, where the blood covered you, and the angel of death passed through you. Something else is happening now. Watch with me. I've got to do this. I need my friends. And I wonder if he was thinking, they're falling asleep. They're going to abandon me. And my father is going to abandon me. My Habba. Why did he abandon his son? For you and for me. Why did he take the cup of wrath? For you and for me. He thought about you. You see, in the Passover, and we don't know this, this is not necessarily in the scripture, but there was a tradition of four cups that they would celebrate Passover with. It's really cool because the first cup represents when God brought them out of the yoke of slavery in Egypt and from Pharaoh. And Egypt and Pharaoh always represent sin, bondage to sin, and Pharaoh always represents Satan. God delivers them. The second cup they would drink from is that I will redeem you. And there's a a picture of being bought and married. And God says, you're going to be my bride. And the third cup they would drink from at Passover night is I will take you. I will take you to the land. I will take you to a place that though you don't deserve it, is flowing with milk and honey and prosperity. And the fourth is, I will protect you. You see, there was a fifth cup. It's known as the cup of Elijah now. 
But back then it was called the cup of his wrath. And it's almost like Jesus got to the fourth cup of I will protect you, and he said, I have to pass on that one. In order for you to be redeemed out of slavery, in order for you to be married, in order for you to go to that pleasant land, I give up protection, and I will drink the cup of his wrath. Can you imagine? This is the cup Jesus was staring into. It's filled with the wine of God's fury upon sin. He knows he's taking the penalty upon himself, and he must drink every last drop down to the bitterest of dregs. And with shocking, blood-dropping awareness and sheer terror, Jesus is looking to this cup. You see this place called Gethsemane. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's really some different pictures from the Gospels put together. John calls it a garden. Luke, as you saw, called it the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is almost like where they produce the crops. But then you can picture people had land in there. And this idea of Gethsemane that we hear Matthew and Mark use was a place. It means oil press. In fact, that, the geth part, gashamin, is got, is a lever that puts extreme pressure on the olive oil to squeeze, and it was the, the blood of the olive out. And the shamin was the oil. And the rabbis called that oil the light of the world. You picture Jesus was in this place where it's sort of like you have a barn and a farm. That barn is Gethsemane. It's the place of oil production. And then he's at the Mount of Olives, the region. We don't know. Maybe he was in this place of oil production and went out into the garden. We don't know. But it was a common place. Judas knew it so well, he knew right where to go without knowing where they had gone. Maybe they were staying there. I don't know. But it's interesting because Jesus was from Nazareth, and Nazareth is called the olive shoot. It was predicted when Jesus came, he'd be in the kingly line of David. It says a shoot will spring up from, from Jesse. An olive shoot will spring up from Jesse, the root. The rabbis called that olive the light of the world. Guess what Jesus called himself? The light of the world. You see, I think Gethsemane foreshadowed what was about to happen to him. I can imagine him sitting in that place of oil production. You see, there was three different processes that oil went through. This was the first and the most important process. And again, ancient olive oil looked more like blood. In fact, sometimes they would make wine on the same kind of contraptions that they built. It was interchangeable. And what they do is they get water, and they get these olives, and they put them in there, and they would put a lever all into that little hole and grind and beat that thing to a pulp all those olives just to a pulp. And because it was in water, what we call extra virgin olive oil would spring up. And it was the best given to God. And the other part was for light. And the other part was for incense, for worship. So they would move on to the second thing. You see, it wasn't good enough to stop there. They would take that, that blood olive, the pulp and the mash together, and they put it in these baskets made of 
a, a, called a yam or like a, made out of hemp, but it's like a pillow and a basket. And they put it in there and they do a bunch of stacks. And in that crevice, you can see where the pole is going into, they would stack these up. And that lever, that, that geth, where Gethsemane comes from, would put extreme pressure down on those baskets and slam into them. And those rocks that are there, maybe you can see it better on this picture. There's these little pulleys that they pull these rocks up to get more extreme, more extreme, more extreme pressure to pull out the life of that olive. Those baskets would look like this. It would bleed out and run down. You see, the second phase was made for making bread and medicine. And the third, they would take those baskets and they would get rocks and sticks and they would pound it and beat it, the stones and the rocks, and they would make a soap out of what remained. I wonder if Jesus is staying in this place. We don't know. But he's looking around saying, that's going to be me. I'm the light of the world. In order for them to have life, I have to have death. I have to be beat to a pulp for them. As it's grinding around, what would it have been like if you were there, if you were witness to this? You see, the wrath I deserve, he took. Abba, let this cup pass. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God drank that cup for you so we could drink his life in us. That's why Gethsemane is so important. Jesus had to surrender his will before he surrendered his body. He will sacrifice himself. It's called a sacrificing atonement. And there's several Greek words that make up this word, and that's why the Bible usually translates it this way. But there's one word in particular called propitiation. And propitiation is always connected with the divine wrath of God. You see, in the pagan times, when they thought of propitiation, it meant, I've got to do whatever I can to bring this sacrifice, and I've got to work really hard, and I've got to bring my own stuff to, to this God or gods, and they may accept it, they may not, but I've got to work real hard, and I've got to do it myself. But God blows it all out of the water. He redefines this idea of propitiation. You see, He provides the sacrifice that atones for his own wrath. Wrath is the consequence of his justice. And to satisfy his wrath against sin, it requires propitiation or sacrifice. Propitiation always refers to satisfying or setting aside God's wrath. God is the one who provides the sacrifice precisely as the way of turning aside his own wrath. Isn't that amazing? Who would do that? D.A. Carson says this, All God's justice is worked out in Christ, who takes our curse and penalty upon himself on the tree. A sacrifice has been made that covers over, satisfies, and catch this, sets aside permanently God's wrath for those who have faith in what he's done, who simply believe that he's the one that had to provide the sacrifice, that I can do nothing about my sin or the penalty of my sin. He alone has to do it. 
And it appeases his wrath against me and you when we say yes. His blood is that amazing. His sacrifice is that amazing. It's the evidence of God's love. And in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, it says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Catch this, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And that word in Greek is propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because he loves us. And without understanding his wrath, we can't fully understand his love. We can't fully understand how amazing it is that Christ did what he did. In Leviticus it says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood of Christ covers you. He sees his son's blood or atonement by the life in the blood. You see, it doesn't just cover you. It gives you life. He drank this cup so we could drink the cup of life, that we could eat the bread of life. Through his death, I receive life. And that life is the precious blood of Jesus. He drank that cup of wrath so I could drink the cup of life. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, it was a once and for all sacrifice. His blood for you is good the, the time that he found you, and today, and tomorrow. But so often we live like God's wrath is still upon us because we still sin. But the truth is, is his blood. When we ask, Father, forgive me, he forgives you. The blood of Christ is sufficient. It's what we stand on. I told you about those olive presses. And if you remember, each one produced something. The blood of the olive, that first one was that first press going around. And it produces light and incense. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Remember the, the, the woman caught in adultery? And he says, go and sin no more. And then he explains it. He says, I am the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. The light has come. It's the benefit of his blood. Incense. It says this in Hebrews. We have God's glad welcome. We have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus. Always. Always. We can worship him in spirit and truth now. Number two, the bread. I am the bread of life. Remember Jesus said, I live on, on God's word alone. There is bread to sustain you. In medicine, if you remember in the Good Samaritan, he binds up the wounds with wine and olive oil. It's a picture of healing. The blood of Jesus heals you spiritually, sometimes physically. But one day it will 
heal physically when we go to be with him. And the third is the soap. It's a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture that his propitiation and his blood is good enough. It says in 1 John, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. Again, that's that word, propitiation. For our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why do you walk under God's wrath? If you don't know him today, you are still under that. But he's done everything to bring you to the place of peace. By his wounds you are healed when you say yes and you believe in him. And if you are a believer here today, why do you quickly go back into wrath? He wore out his wrath on Christ on the cross for you. And yes, you will sin. But First John says when we say, God, I'm sorry. He says he's faithful and just. And he cleanses us and purifies us from all sin. And not only that, he breaks the power of sin. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. But the more you understand his love, how can we not keep going towards him? How can we not keep going towards him? The one that drank that cup of his wrath. You see, the blood of Jesus, there's only one ground to stand on, and that's the blood-soaked ground. We stand on the work Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and nothing else, and we stand by faith from first to last. We know and rely on the love he has for us. What ground do you stand on? Are you building sandcastles? Are you building on the rock? that was crucified for you and resurrected in power that you could live for righteousness. What are you building on? First John, it's the most, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's the most profound verse to me. It defines everything about what I want my life to be. He says, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that will collapse out from under you. That's my theology. Fall in love with Jesus because he's in love with you. He's madly in love with you. So much so that he took what he took on the cross for you. God's wrath has been satisfied. He drank that cup so you could drink life.